If you would take your Bible tonight, turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8. I will be there shortly. The Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 12 had sort of a paradigm shift in outlook. Uh, the story you know well, the Apostle Paul was ministering for the Lord. He had seen some incredible revelations. The Lord allowed him to see some things up, caught up into heaven, and they were, as Paul said, unspeakable. The glory was immense. And following that, curiously, Paul was giving, given a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. People have all kinds of ideas. It could have been uh, an eye disease. It could have been some kind of gout. No one really knows, and it doesn't really matter. It's something that was severe enough that the Apostle Paul wanted it to go away. And the Bible says he besought the Lord three times that it might be removed, because in Paul's mind, the removal of the thorn would make him more productive. But the opposite was true. The thorn maintained its place, um, as the Bible says there in that text, was there, it was a messenger of Satan to buffet him, to keep him humble. And I've learned this in life. Sometimes people who have some kind of perceptual disadvantage are actually far more productive for the Lord than otherwise because they trust in Him in a greater way. Amen. And then Paul went on to say, you know, my grace is sufficient for thee. And, and it was. And when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And then Paul goes on to say these incredible things. Um, this is a, a, a gross paraphrase. The things I sort of wanted gone, now I rejoice in them. In other words, I'm thankful for them. I am grateful for the hardship in my life because it has taught me to depend upon God more. And in my dependence upon Him, I have done things I would have never done in my strength alone. That is quite a shift in thinking. Well, that is a little bit where we're headed tonight in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, look at chapter 8. Context here, the children of Israel uh, have been delivered from Egyptian bondage. They have made their way primarily through the desert. They're about to enter into Canaan. Uh, Moses has halted them, stopped them, and said, now stop, look back. There's something I want you to know as you go into this next phase, which would involve conflict and difficulty and fighting and probably the loss of life. He says, there's something I want you to know going forward, and you're going to learn the lesson by looking back. So let's stand to Deuteronomy chapter 8 tonight. Verse number one, and of course those who know chapter eight, what an incredible passage. The latter verses here talk about, you know, beware uh, when God blesses you and gives you thing, lest you think you did it yourself. Um, you know, never be, never let it be lost in, in your heart and mind that God is the giver of all things. But that's the last part of the chapter. These verses say this in verse number one. Now all the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. In other words, do what I tell you because it works. And a blessing comes with it. Verse number two. And thou shalt remember, here's the lesson. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years. How did God bring thee from point A to point B? How did God lead me these 40 years? In the wilderness, and he did this. To humble thee, and to prove thee, and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep His commandments or no. My Heavenly Father, I, I thank You for the night. We thank You for being here with us and ever-present uh, help. And Lord, we ask for help tonight as we look into Your Word. And Lord, the greater struggle tonight is not 
learning something, the greater struggle is appropriating that truth. And Lord, that's where we really need help. So Lord, as we, as we look into your word, I ask the, the Holy Spirit would illuminate our understanding and then Lord, give us the strength to appropriate this idea of trusting in you in all circumstances. And I ask your help with that in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for standing. Over the years, um, I have had a number of reoccurring conversations with people. You know, different people, uh, different conversation, but similar in type. And one of those conversations is someone's coming to talk to me, and they'll be talking about a struggle, or use this word, a difficulty that they're having with another person. And of course, from their perspective, they're not the problem the other person is. And so we're going to give that as a given tonight. You're not the problem they are, okay? And that's what we're just going to go with tonight. And I mean, you know, seriously, that's, that's, the, that's the perspective here. And so they're dealing with somebody who's difficult in their life, and this person is sort of present more than, you know, once or twice. They're an ongoing thorn in the flesh, if you will. Now, sometimes these difficult people, you know, they're being bullies, um, you know, difficult in that way. Or they're stubborn. Uh, sometimes there are spouses, <laughs> and they're difficult to work with. Um, it could be a problematic coworker uh, or a family member, more often than not. I think all of us have had people like that placed in proximity to our lives as well. Is that true? We all know what it is to be around other people who are not working with us well or even antagonistic towards us for a while. Uh, when I have had these discussions with people, I always encourage them first to go look in a mirror, do some self-evaluation. You know, could I be the source of the conflict? Am I creating something in them that's making them act this way? Are they responding to me? Or am I actually, you know, um, as the New Testament tells us to do, you know, we need to get a look in the mirror and remove the, the splinters in our, our eye or the moat that's there before we try to remove the splinter from somebody else's. That, that's always a great way. Before you fix someone else's problems, evaluate your own. And you don't have to be problem free to help people, but you have to have yours dealt with. And so I, I always encourage self-evaluation. And then I offer this, be blameless. No matter what people do and how ugly they are, you try to operate and you respond as blamelessly as you can. And again, we all probably struggle with that. Seek ways to resolve the angst, you know, maybe some ways creatively. But despite that counsel, sometimes it just seems there's no possible way to resolve the rub. It's just there. Okay, so when we've been that position, and I, I would assume most grown-ups here have, um, it's easy for our spirit to suffer. In one of two ways, we get either really aggravated and mad, and or we can sulk and find ourselves maybe in a level of despair. And then when that happens, and when it's happened in my life, and when it's happened in other people's life, I solace myself with this reminder, and I would encourage you as well. When we have external conflict with people or circumstances that we cannot seem to be able to get away from and or remove, that is a time when no doubt God is orchestrating an opportunity for us to trust in His goodness and grace in a greater way. You follow that? God positions us in this, in the fact that I'm suggesting that He does, that God maybe sometimes allows us position into a place where we are sort of stuck and can't get away from. Um, that is a time when that evidently, 
Uh, he obviously doesn't want us to go negative and to hurt ourselves in spirit. He wants us to do the opposite, you know, sing in the prison, as Brother Prater suggested, or, you know, have a, a, be a light and salt in that arena. Um, you know, the Lord wants us to depend on His grace and goodness in a greater way. And then He wants to use that rub to polish you into a better person. And by better, I mean more dependent upon Him, more faith-filled. By better, I mean stronger, a person of greater patience, a, pace, a person of greater endurance, uh, having more resilience, uh, etc. I think you would get the Christian virtue ideas that I'm suggesting. Now, this is a philosophy of life that we need to embrace as you and I try to navigate in this difficult world. And the world is difficult. We can succumb to the challenge and implode by becoming angry, argumentative. We can fight, we can flee, we can quit, or we can become equally difficult as our problem. We can become victim and suffer the consequences of victims. But I, I think an alternative choice that Christians should make, made possible by grace, not just by bootstraps, is to live above the circumstances of life, to rise above life's challenges and difficulties, rather than choosing to be trampled by them. Amen. And we've all been trampled by them. We've all been in a bad spot where we, we were angry, we were mad, we responded in really poor ways, where we've been sullen, de depressed, whatever else. Um, you know, I, I've probably offered this piece of thought a hundred times from the pulpit. You know, what happens to us is sometimes beyond our control, almost always beyond our control. But what happens inside of us is always within our control. We can control and we can govern our spirit. And the Bible strongly encourages us to do that. I can't fix this. That means God wants me to elevate something in here. There's something here that He wants me to work on. Now, that piece of counsel is easier said than done, especially in the immediacy of a difficult situation. But it's still a truth. There's a grace here that we need to incorporate into the practice of our lives. That practice allows you to grow when you choose to invite God's grace appropriately and not be victim, but victor in life's difficulties. It invites God's participation in your life when you do that. And all begins by you truly believing that God is at work in the circumstances of your life, and in and through them He gives grace for you to appropriate to develop positive outcomes in your life. Okay, that's a lot of words to say this. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Okay, in this arena. You know, I don't know, I can't dovetail for you the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. It's irreconcilable for this person. And every theologian I've ever known, except those who are just, you know, want to manifest their ignorance. I just know this, that my God is big enough to know everything I'm going to go through. And if He wanted to keep me from it, He could. And if He wants to usher me to it, He can. And I'm just going to choose to believe this because the Bible says it's true. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you some verses in a moment. That no matter where I go, first of all, God is with me. And I'm probably there for a reason, for myself and for others. You know, sometimes things befall me that I invite 
when I might injure into my own life, but even then God's involved in that, as we shall see, to perhaps teach us something. Paul went through much difficulty, as I have already alluded to, but here's what he learned, as he did in 2 Corinthians 12, Philippians 1.6. He was confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. See, when you were saved, you know, something miraculous happened. You were given a new spirit. Um, you were given a new citizenship. You were given a grace to appropriate that you did not have before. You became a child of God. And in that moment, and in that instant that only God would exactly know, God began to perform a, 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 a predestination. It's the one area where it's really right to talk about predestination. It's when you got saved. I'm not talking about your salvation. What happened once you got saved? And at that point, you were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Amen. Now, some of you will make more progress toward that in life than others. And some of you won't get any semblance of it until you die. But we'd like to get further down the road than we are now, maybe. That's predestined for that. God started something in us in salvation, and it will be fully realized when we're standing in His presence, and we are changed, you know, into the Son's likeness. Uh, Paul was confident that every circumstance of life could and had the potential to move us in that direction. Does that make sense? God is daily present, active, intertwined in the circumstances of our life to move us and to shape us, to morph us into more of the image of His Son. Um, that is, you know, Romans 8 predestination. Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. God's involved in, in, in every part of my life, and His Spirit speaks to mine. And when I'm in this difficult situation, He wants me in that moment to do His good pleasure, to do what He would have me to do, not succumb to the baser um, carnal man inside of us still. And of course, the ultimate verse that teaches this truth, and the one I would, I, would, I would assume most people have memorized, Romans 8, 28, and we know all things, and what an incredibly encompassing phrase that is. Work together for our good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. That phrase, work together, is an alchemist term. Alchemist, um, chemist, maybe pharmacist. And I think most of us would have a, at least a, a basic knowledge of, of alchemy or how chemistry works. You put reactants together and you get some product over here that's very different than the reactants. And sometimes you can take very caustic substances and put them together, and over here, you get there, over there something completely benign and not harmful. Right? Put an acid and a base together, and you get water. And you can't live without it. Sodium, a metal, if you touch it, it'll catch you on fire. Chlorine, a gas, if you breathe it, you die. And you get salt, and you can't live without it. See, what the Bible is suggesting here is not everything that happens to you is good. A lot of things that befall us are not good. But with God's alchemy, He can use those for your good. Amen. I mean, what an incredible truth to embrace. We've heard it all of our lives, and yet when we experience it, we act like it's not true, at least in our countenance. 
we don't really follow that through the way we should in practice. You see, God has promised a ministry to us. And that ministry is to use the circumstances of life, um, and Paul was confident of this ministry, to accomplish His purposes in us. God has an ongoing, persistent, unrelenting, faithful work He is doing in us and for us in life. He is taking us on a journey. And despite how difficult and bumpy that road might be, it all leads us to the same destination, ultimately the likeness of Christ. And you can get further down the road there as you work with God. So, the text, okay? This is sort of what Moses is indicating is, has been happening to them and would continue to happen to them. They've gone through this journey. And Moses says, now, think about the manner in which, the manner in which, uh, the way in which God brought you to where you are today. He didn't put you on a really nice shiny bus that was air-conditioned that had snacks and soda, and He just brought you through the desert. That was not how they got there. That, he says, it didn't happen that way. And when people get in places in life that way only, they tend to be really weak people. Um, he says, um, that's not what happened. He says, remember, um, God was there, and He accomplished a work in you through the way, through the journey. You were just thinking about the destination, but God was thinking about the journey. And that's such an important part in life. The journey is as important as the destination. The journey shapes us. Um, think about the history of Eastland Baptist Church. You know, the, the day we walked into this building was a destination day. Um, but both before that time and after that time was a journey. You know, through pocketbook, through sacrifice, um, it was a journey. There's a lot involved in getting to Canaan in any area of life, and, and God's involved there. And, and so, look at verse 1 with me, if you would. So, Paul, I'm sorry, Moses reminded of this, and he says, so this, you get ready to go to the promised land, you, you're getting ready to get a partial reward, but even that's going to come at a price. He said, remember this, all the commandments which I command you this day, you shall observe to do. Uh, if, if God's going to bless you, you should, um, you should thank Him and obey Him. And then he warns later, don't let the blessings of God keep you from serving God. And so he says, you do that, that you may live and multiply and go in to possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. This is a principle. It's axiomatic. You obey God, He'll bless you. And not always the ways we may wish or think in the moment, but you reap what you sow. This is a universal constant principle in life that God has put in place. But verse 2 is where the ministry comes in. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years. And so, now think back. How did God lead you? And he says, if you're thinking, there's at least three or four lessons here you should have learned in the way that God works. Um, something you should see clear in the journey. And he says, so, way God has worked, number one, um, is to humble you. Evidently, in reaching Canaan and beyond, the way God led us in the wilderness kept us humble. And it was meant to keep you humble. This is one of God's ministries to us. It's something that you can expect in life as His child, that this week, uh, next month, in the coming year, 2024, if the Lord doesn't come back, God is going to be active in your life <laughs> to humble you. Now, you may resist that, 
But that's God's purpose. He said, well, I'm there. Well, if you said that, you're not. But God's going to be doing that. I can kind of authoritatively state that to you. It may, not, it may or may not be a thorn in the flesh, but it may be one of those adjutants in life you know, that we don't like and we might ask God to remove that He allows to remain for some time. But God has the ministry to humble you. One of the things every one of us should fully comprehend is that God gives grace to the humble. And with grace comes power and strength and favor with God. God gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. Therefore, we would want to find ourselves in the group of the humble. God values um, and finds incredibly precious a contrite spirit, we are told. Whatever else God wants to find in the heart of one of His children, it is humility. There's a lot of things that should be in our heart, but one of them should be humility. And He often brings things into our lives to help us avoid arrogance and pride. Um, one of those things that God used in my life early was children. And He has continued to use children to humble me. Now, I said that in a way that you're laughing at, is that little kids can say really embarrassing things for parents. They can do things that we're like, I can't believe they just said or did that. So that's one way they humble us, and then teenagers too. But I think much or more than that, I, I was humbled by my own failures. Amen. I don't know what I'm doing. I did that wrong. I mean, I could ask for a mulligan there. The guy who, you know, I, I said to the staff this week, everyone has opinions until they have responsibility. And then responsibility often changes and informs opinions. And boy, that's true about humility. I knew how to parent. You know, I, was, <laughs> I knew how this was going to work. It's like, wait, that didn't work. And, you know, and, and children teach us. God uses our failures to humble us. God uses our deficiencies to humble us. God uses our inadequacies, the circumstance of life. God uses people. We think we're smart, and He introduces us to someone smarter. You know, all agree that God loved and greatly used the Apostle Paul, and I've already referenced 2 Corinthians 12. And lest I should be exalted above measure, pride, through the abundance of the revelations, that he saw in the third heaven, my words, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, and then the reason, lest I should be exalted above measure. Hardship is present in my life so that my arrogance can be diminished, so I can be more humble, so God's um, grace can be uh, a help to me, and I can get more done for God and hurt my life less. God will be involved in humbling us. Tomorrow, next week, in the coming year. God humbled Paul. God humbled David many times. God humbled Moses. And God is always going to be working to humble us as well. We would be so well served if we understand um, how much God hates pride in me and you. And we are filled with it. We are arrogant in a thousand ways. And it'll take the rest of our lives to be buffeted 
to get some measure of it out of us. Repeatedly, you know, we're told not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And we should esteem others better than ourselves. Um, not needing our help always, but sometimes they're just better than us. If you have a thorn in the flesh, a difficulty, a challenge, a person, um, I think God's intent is at some point you stop worrying about the thorn. And you start thinking about your own heart. And it's, sure, it's hard to do. But I believe in part that's God's intent. If you look at the text, verse 2 again, I'm going to read it again. And thou shalt remember all the way that the Lord thy God hath led these 40 years in the wilderness. Well, what, what's the Lord been doing these 40 years? Well, He's been working to humble you and then to prove thee. To prove thee. God already knows what's in your heart. But He's always acting, active in our lives to teach us and show us what's in our heart. Um, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I've, I've said this a thousand times. Um, one of the greatest gifts in the world is the gift of self-awareness. And most of us lack that. And we may have varying degrees of self-awareness, but I promise you, if you could vacate your eyes and look at yourself through the eyes of a lot of other people, you would discover a whole new person standing over there. And certainly through the lens of God's eyes, that would be true. God is in the process in the ministry of helping us see who we are so that we can endeavor and work to work on that person who we really are. The power to deceive ourselves runs deep. Uh, only a man who can honestly, sometimes brutally examine himself and then find fault there, accurate faults, not the wrong kind, has any hope of growing and change. Um, we need that. I found this some years ago, and uh, I've rehearsed it before. It's a story about Oliver Cromwell. Um, he was a leader in the 1600s, Scotland and England, and he commissioned a painting of himself. You know, which leaders do that? You know, you know, give me a painting. But unlike a lot of other leaders, he wasn't looking for some magnificent masterpiece that, as we would say today, is airbrushed and glorious, you know, in some majestic pose. Here's what he did. He commissioned an artist to paint his image, but with this caveat. Um, Oliver Cromwell refused to pay the painter unless the painting truly was a reflection of him. And a quote, pimples, warts, and all. No airbrushing. I want to see the man that I am. And I want to make sure other people see him too. You know, understand that makes much of the New Testament make more sense. When Jesus was standing before the disciples and the 5,000 were there, and Jesus said, give them something to eat. Why, why would Jesus do that? Like, he's, he's God, just make it happen. He would do that. But in the interval of time between he asked them to do it and he did it, that was a reflective moment. One guy got a calculator. Well, let me figure all this up. We don't have enough money. What did it show? Faithless. Dependent upon human resource. You know, if, if, if we were to save this much money, Lord, we couldn't do that. 
Like every man in that moment sort of discovered the reality and had forgotten that they were walking with God. You know, it was shown. And if you kind of look at the New Testament, you'll see so many stories where what Jesus was doing is was helping the disciples to see who they were so that they could grow, so they could see it themselves, so that they would do something with that. Jesus, in this case, wanted Philip to see that he was a calculating man, not a faith-filled man. Exodus chapter 16, God proved Israel with manna. It would come down at one time a day, and you had to collect for that day. If you did more, it would rot. People went out there, and they gathered more than they should. <laughs> what was that about? It was a test. Do you trust me that I'll bring it tomorrow or not? You, you think I'm going to be in your tomorrow? Because I'm telling you that I will. So just get what you need for the day. It's a test. Judges 2. Land was given to the people, and God wanted to see what they were going to do with it. Most failed the test. Psalms 26, 2, David asked God to prove him in this way. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins. The word means motives. And my heart. David said, I think I know who I am, but I guess I maybe don't. Maybe if David could see that he was covetous, he had a tendency for maybe something like adultery or conspiracy. Maybe it could have kept him from it, but he was delusioned about who he was and his power. So he did some really bad things. David knew that when faced with the truth about himself, that then he could grow. That then he could become closer to God. Um, let me ask you this question. What has this last week's life's difficulty proven about you? The last thought you have the spouse, what did it prove about? Not them, what did it prove about you? The last contrary opinion that you had, what did it prove about you? The way that you talked about that person, this rub, what did that prove about you? The way you bumped up against something you disagreed with, what did that prove about you? See, you thought it was about, and I'm being facetious here, it was about seeing the fault in them. But maybe God was saying, no, this is about seeing the fault in you by the way you looked at them. And Jesus turned the tables on the Pharisees that way a dozen times. A dozen times. It's not about what they did wrong. It's the way you responded to what they did that was wrong that I want you to see. God's going to give you opportunity to see a lot of bad things in others and circumstances of life, but maybe, just maybe, He's trying to help you prove something about yourself and the way you respond. The last thing, what did your last disagreement, your last fight, when you felt like you were being deprived? Were you spoiled? Were you quick to complain? complain? When something difficult came, did, did you overcome it? Did you quit? Have you proven to be resilient, a fighter to trust the Lord, or something different? I just am suggesting that God is ministering to us in this way to prove us um, on purpose. And then number three, quickly, verse two. And thou shalt remember all the way um, God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, uh, to know what was in thine heart, 
whether thou wouldest keep it, it or not. You know, God wants to, um, to teach us. He wants to know what's in our heart again. I'm going to submit this to you, and I have to close. All of life is a lesson. Whatever today was, in part, it was an instructive opportunity for you to pass or fail, to grow or not, to cooperate and appropriate the grace of God, or to fail yourself of the grace of God. We can learn from life, both good and bad. Good and bad should both be instructive to us. With manna, God taught them, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, in order to trusting Him. It's an important lesson. God cares as much about our spiritual condition as our physical condition. We should probably give both attention, but I'm going to you know, submit that maybe we should care more about our heart because God's trying to instruct us there. The basic things. What, what would God teach me to depend upon Him more? Um, to learn to trust Him more. Um, God wants us to pay attention to the things in life and how we respond, the condition of our heart, as the text says, to know what's there. Um, God wants to do a work in us through the things that happen around us. And so tonight, I'm going to end with this, try to finish on time. Um, let's just go back a week. Do you recognize, can you now recognize the way the Lord maybe have intended to lead you through the week? Go back a year. Do you think you could look back and think, oh, that's what he intended. But I didn't cooperate with that much. That could have humbled me. But I rose up and was arrogant. That could have showed me a lot about myself, but instead I just saw what was wrong with all of you. I could have learned something from that encounter, and I, I haven't in a long time. I keep doing the same thing over and over. I, I'm just telling you, there, there's, there's just all this activity that God has been involved in in your past. The point is, let's turn around this way now and think, he's still going to do that tomorrow for me. So when I see an opportunity to swallow my pride, maybe I should. When I, when I see something wrong over there, maybe I should look in here. It's not that that doesn't exist. It's just the way I respond to it might be, could improve. What, I, what, what, what am I not learning about myself and life and others? And learn, try to figure that out and just trust the Lord. In some measure, these people in the coming years learned and grew and were humbled. And then when they failed to get these lessons, they suffered a lot of hardship for it. So God's ways work. You have a ministry here in the church. And our God has a ministry to us. And let's be aware of it. All right, let me ask you to stand tonight if you would.